Hey everyone, my name is Yaro and you're listening to the Daydream Falls podcast. Really glad to be back here with you. It's been two weeks since I last published an episode and that's because I've been busy in other ways. <laughs> I mean, that's a funny word to use right now, right? I've been home, of course, um, but last weekend I did the breathwork teacher training level two and three with David Elliott, which was really beautiful and I just kind of cleared the week before that completely to be able to receive that and be present and also work with my clients and be present with them so I didn't get a chance to upload any episode but here we are I hope you are safe and home and that you're finding small comforts in these strange times um, the episode I'm bringing you today is really interesting I spoke to Benibel Wen who wrote the fantastic huge book holistic tarot if you've seen the book you know it's really really just super big and so yeah it's so deep and rich and I think um, if you're interested in a tarot and you want a lot more scientific background uh, a lot of history and a lot of really interesting approaches then this is such a great book for you and I really just loved speaking to Benabel and like I always say, I think it's so interesting to hear other people's perspectives and hear about how they practice and where they find nourishment, especially right now and always. So yeah, I hope you enjoy that episode. I want to give you a few more updates. Um, I have been up and down like most of us the last few weeks. I'm experiencing a lot of fatigue and anxiety of course and worry I also have pockets of hope I'm really refilled with solitude that is certainly not scarce at the moment I'm really missing cuddles um yeah really appreciating the work that I do have still the clients that work with me doing some business mentoring a bit of tech support for my other business Yarrow Digital I'm also lying on the floor a lot and hanging out in my garden, for which I'm extra grateful. And what has been feeling helpful for me is to engage with death again in a deeper way. So maybe you remember I did this death midwife training last year and I'm also a grief celebrant. And obviously these things feel really big and important right now because I don't know, I'm someone who just enjoys kind of confronting the things that I'm worried about in myself and for my communities. And so at the moment, for example, I'm writing the um, Natural Death Handbook, which is really interesting and just learning about practices of grief and being with the truth of the matter that our lives are not forever. Um, and that feels strangely comforting in a way. So. I'll be sharing more about that whenever I'm ready. Otherwise, I have um, a program coming up called Unravel, and which is going to start later in May. And I'm going to keep that super, super simple and affordable because I think that we all have a very limited attention span, um, limited budgets. We probably want connection. I find that important right now, but it can't be too much. I don't want to be on my screen all the time. So it's kind of about finding balance for me. Um, anyway, so Unravel is going to be an exploration of grief, tending, and transformation through breathwork, journaling, and ritual. And it will be six weeks long. Each week you'll receive an email with some journaling prompts, a tiny, tiny ritual idea, and a recorded meditation. And that's it. 
and there's no rush, there's no need to engage or spend any particular time with that, you can just see what feels good um, and what you have space for. And then in those six weeks, so every other week, we'll also have a 90-minute live call with breathwork and some group chairing where we can talk about what came up that week as we looked at the material or generally in life and be together a little bit. So those will be 90 minutes long so that everyone gets to share if they want to. Um, you can totally come as you are, you know, pyjama-friendly situation. And yeah, so... That feels good. Not every week. That feels a bit too much. Three sessions do so that we're not feeling alone with the material. There is a sense of community. We can talk to each other. Um, and in terms of pricing, it will be just available to every Patreon. So you can literally pledge $3 and get access to that and all my other programs like Embodied Magic and my zines and recordings from uh, previous workshops that I run this year, of which there are quite a few now. Um, but you can obviously also pledge more. So if I'm thinking about what feel, would feel good for me is if the average person maybe pledged between like 50 and and $100. And that could look anything from pledging $3 for a year and a half or two years. Or it could be pledging $20 for a few months over the summer. So whatever works for you, have a think about that. If you want to join, um, really want to keep it open and super simple. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll release the dates once I have them. So sign up for my newsletter if you want to hear about that. Um, otherwise, um, the Embodied Business Community is still open for enrollment. That's part of my other business, Yara Digital. And it's a year-long group coaching experience in which we have monthly group coaching calls, a community on Mighty Networks, monthly themed workshops, quarterly business planning. We have co-working spaces where we just hang out and work together. And then we also have sessions on building a business in times of crisis, which are really supportive and comforting. It's honestly, the people in this community just amaze me with the businesses that they run. Some are at the very beginning. Some have just lost their jobs and are thinking about doing something different. Some have been in business for many years and just want a little bit more support and togetherness. And so it's really sweet. Um, and it costs $24 a month for 10 months. And I'll link to that in the show notes as well. Yeah, I think that's pretty much it. My book is coming out in June, <laughs> finally, for real. Um, every Patreon will receive a digital copy. So if you want to support that work, now would be such a great time to become a Patreon. I'd be really grateful. And then the last thing I will say is that I'm sorry that Ernie was barking at the beginning of the, this episode a little bit. So um, he is still tiny and he has a lot of energy. And I've been trying to cut most of the bags out, but there might be one or two left. So just know that it's just in the beginning and then uh, he comes down and falls asleep. And thank you so much for listening again. Really just love doing this so much. Sending love your way. Hey, everyone. As you know, I kind of already say this, but I'm super lucky with the kind of people I get to talk to. Today, I'm talking to Benabel Wen, who's written a beautiful book, I don't even want to call it book because it's really more like ooh, a, a huge exploration. It's like a tarot wonderland. <laughs> it's a really big, very comprehensive, really beautiful book that can take you so deep into your own studies. And I felt really yeah, excited to receive it and explore. As you know, I'm always interested in hearing kind of the different journeys that people had towards this practice 
how they're working with it, developing it, how that's changed over time. And I think that Benedel really put together such comprehensive research and so many beautiful ideas for really anyone to make a start and see what kind of meaning the tarot could have in their own life. So really grateful for this conversation and excited to ask lots of questions. Thank you so much for being here and for making time. Hi, Yero. I'm actually very happy to be here. <laughs> Great. Well, I would love to start by asking you where you are in the world right now, what nature is around you. I always like asking that first because I feel like it gives us an idea how this conversation comes to be across time and space. I'm in Northern California. Mm -hmm. It's spring. It was very cold for a while. So now suddenly the weather, I feel like almost overnight has become quite warm and uh, you're starting to see trees on the leaves and life is coming back. So that's where I am oriented at this moment. Cool. Um, the next thing I would love to know is how you first began your own time practice. Did someone give you a deck or did you discover it yourself? I would love to know more about that. Um, well, I read about tarot for a, for quite a while before I actually had a tarot deck. So in the, um, this was the early 90s. In the early 90s, in a small, small, tiny town in New York, upstate New York, it's not easy to find a tarot deck. Online shopping was not a thing yet. So if it wasn't in your local bookstore, you just didn't have access to it. But for some reason, I had access to tarot books at the public library. So it was this weird disconnect where I was reading about the tarot before I'd actually ever touched a tarot deck. And then Barnes & Noble, uh, it's a very big chain store, came into our small town. And as a gift, one of my really close friends gifted me with a tarot deck. And I think that's really how I got started with the art of tarot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. That's beautiful. Do you remember one of your first readings where you really felt like, wow, this is something that could become a big part of my life because it feels really good and insightful? Um, so I, in the beginning, I don't remember any really one memorable uh, reading because we were we were you know junior high high mm -hmm. school kids reading about things that were extremely important at the time but in the grander scheme of things you know will I get an A in chemistry does he love me does he not love me like these little questions you know who's going to ask me out to the dance right mm -hmm. and so I can't really say those are like profound readings but I do remember feeling like you know and remember the tarot we were reading up the reading, you look up the card meaning in the book, and that's how a tarot reading was done. And I remember feeling already with that how eerily accurate it was and how it seemed to really be some kind of a barometer, uh, giving me a sense of what was going on, taking the temperature of, of the energy in, in a room, right, and with me. And so that was really how it became uh, a thing in my life. And then by college, I, was, I became fluent with the tarot by, college, by my college years. And I think just reading for sorority sisters, guys in school, and I just realized it was extremely accurate. And I don't have one most memorable early reading, but that would probably be it, just a general sense of accuracy. I was muted. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Something that I really liked and and how you kind of make sense of things in the book was this idea of psychological testing. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that means to you and um, how you, yeah, how you came to kind of think of it that way? 
Um, well, I think somebody who is actually studied or licensed in psychology has degrees in psychology would be better suited to answer those questions. For me, it was more of a general sense of it has to do with the mind. Therefore, I'm using the word psychology in a very general colloquial sense of the word, not a technical sense. And I just felt like for me, because of the, the rational side of my mind, and a lot of us have this, we, we really feel like if it's not rational based, you almost don't feel validated in enjoying that practice as much as you do. You feel like you need a scientific explanation. Otherwise, you're an idiot. Like we just have that feeling. And so I think at the time that I was writing Holistic Care, remember this was almost 10 years ago that I was writing the book and then it was published uh, five years ago. So at the time, I think I was just really obsessed more with convincing myself that there was a scientific, rational basis to the tarot. And so I was really fixated on trying to figure out psychological explanations for it. I think I did kind of find it in the works of a lot of other psychology-based tarot readers. And that was what I was trying to showcase in Holistic Tarot. Yeah, that's beautiful. It does really just feel so thorough. So I think for someone who has a similar inclination and really is like, enchanted by the practice in some ways but also really really want some more scientific grounding this is such a beautiful book to work with I wonder how that has changed for you over time so if you were writing that book now what would be different for you um what would be different now well I think that would be sort of that would be the um would be the book of maps which is the companion book I wrote to the tarot deck that I created spirit keepers tarot if I were to write a, I mean I would probably center it more around around tarot generally than my own tarot deck but in the sense of using the tarot more to lean into the unknown not being afraid of things that are not documented in science yet, because that's the whole point. The whole point is to be a pioneer at the cusp of science. And so to feel like you have to be so conservative as to require the old aspects of science to explain something that's not an old aspect of science, it's an old aspect of the craft, but it's always going to be a new aspect of science. That's the reason it's craft. And so I think that's the perspective I would take in writing a tarot book today, as opposed to 10 years ago. Yeah, that's cool. I'm always so interested to see how people's practice has developed over time. I would also love to know a little bit more about the kind of more creative um, journey of writing this book, because I can imagine you know, that was a huge project, especially since you were working full time at the same time and probably had lots of other commitments in your life. What what has kind of kept you going and really grounded you and helped you stay committed to that journey? Um, the simplest answer is routine. You just, you really do need discipline. People think um, very much in terms of these creative, inspirational muses are coming down from the divine to help you. That may or may not be true, but I think if you aren't just, you know, you just hunker down and say, you know, every morning from sunrise to 7 a.m., I'm going to sit down and write. If you don't have that sense of work, ethic it's really hard for the muses to sing to you and for it to produce a work product but if I'm sitting it's almost you do need that explanation if I sit down and I basically with my actions say to the universe I'm ready channel your work through me you know like when you show up every single day and you consistently show up the muses do speak and I think that's really how you go from zero to finishing a book 
yeah it's it's kind of like preparing the vessel for the creative process isn't it and really feeling yeah like you're making space for for the things that need to come through in your life that's beautiful mm-hmm. yeah I also loved a lot of the things that you suggested people do for example in creating their own spreads or um, creating a workbook with their own keywords for example um, there were so many in the book but I wondered for people that are listening to this interview who are excited to get started but kind of a little bit unsure about really what the next step could be. What is your favorite approach or practice for beginners? My favorite approach for beginners, I I say this a lot. I think it really depends on your learning style. And so when they say know thyself, it really is very important because if you don't know your own learning style, you will apply or adopt somebody else's practice that might not be suited for you and then keep hitting dead ends keep hitting a wall and then you instead of blaming the way that you've learned you blame yourself and you think oh i'm not smart or i'm not talented this is not for me and you've just closed yourself off to an opportunity all because you weren't using the right learning process we learn very very differently from each other so i think that's extremely important I think my book would appeal in my way appeals more to somebody who needs something analytical. And so that is the reason I approach it that way. If you need a more disciplined analytical approach, then, you know, open the book, study. I I do use rote learning as a way of learning the tarot card meanings because I am a musician by, you know, at heart. And so musicians need to really master the technique. And when you're practicing violin or piano, it's very unmusical. It's all about the technical aspects of the craft. But when you're performing, when you're at a recital, when you're in concert, that has nothing to do with technique. You, everything goes out the window. And instead of what you're doing is it's the, it's the artistry of it. But you can't get there if you don't have the technique down pat. So for the type who can learn the way I learn, you really need to master each aspect of technique before you look at tarot as an art. Yeah, that's beautiful and really reassuring. I think um, even even to me who, who has worked with the tarot for a long time, it's beautiful to go back to that beginner's mind and really allow myself as I continue on this path to find the way of learning that is best for me at any given point in time. And that might change as well over time. So yeah, I'm really, I'm really glad to have your voice as, as part of my learning experience amongst different voices. So that's great. Um, I'm honored. <laughs> you've written another book called A Tower of Craft that I haven't read yet, but I would love to hear a little bit about that as well, if you're willing to share. Uh, the Tower of Craft is something that's really personal to me. So I always call it a memoir even though it's obviously not a memoir it's nonfiction. it's about it's like a how-to book on how to craft food talismans a form of sigil crafting in eastern mystical traditions um, but for me it was about exploring the history and the cultural setting the cultural backdrop that uh, brought forth my family practices so for a lot for my whole life it was just my family practice that i knew isolated from the culture and the history that i'm part of and so, you know, my grandmother or my mother would, you know, do certain, make certain charms or do certain things in, um, you know, Buddhist, Taoist mysticism. And then if I ask them, because they're more of a folk practitioner, when I say, why do we do this? They're like, because this is the way it is. They, even they don't really have a sense of the cultural and historic uh, tradition and legacy of it. So then I did the academic research, the scholarly research 
paired with the actual practice. And I think that's where the book came from, just wanting to find the setting for where these folk practices came from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. What a beautiful way to connect with your heritage and learn more. Um, can you give us an example of what, of what a talisman could look like? Like in what kind of life situation would someone sit down and make something like that? The, uh, the, the, more, the most practical, direct, half humorous one that I know of is the one for studying and final exams to, to make sure you get good grades in school. Because that was just, it's just such a part of my like, childhood. That's the one that first one to come to my head is, you know, your mother would create like take rice paper and you use Chinese calligraphy to create these different glyphs that basically represent a blessing in what after you invoke a particular divinity so it is a polytheistic tradition you invoke a divinity that's related to the blessing that you want right and then you draft and then you craft the sigil onto a long strip of of, of, of rice paper and then you fold it up and then once you fold it up you either you know you place it somewhere on your personal just like a lucky charm and you know, that's believed by folk traditions to help you do better in school. It's a form of uh, sigil crafting or charm casting for good luck in, in test taking. Yeah, that's so cool. And I think, I, I mean, I don't want to project that on you. Maybe if you feel different about it, that's totally fine as well. But to me, just the process of loved ones committing to this practice of crafting something together, everyone putting their intention in it, and then me being able to carry it into the situation that maybe I'm a little bit nervous about is so beautiful. And I, um, you know, like sometimes when I'm in my more, more rational mind and I need to find some kind of justification for having that kind of practice, I really think of it that way of like, that's all I need to know. You know, that's the magic. It's so beautiful. <laughs> I absolutely agree. And I think that actually is magic. I don't think it needs to be like, oh, well, this is my rational explanation. I think even the fact that so much genuine love and like these people who are nervous on your behalf, who mm -hmm. love on your behalf and go through this trouble of painstakingly crafting something that you, you literally physically bring with you into the, like, I feel like that has a lot of magic to it. Even if you need a psychological explanation, that psychological explanation is also equal to magic in my in my belief yeah in my belief too <laughs> yes <laughs> always nice to meet people that feel similarly um i'm wondering at the moment or generally maybe this year or last year if you had um a sense of intimacy with a tarot archetype that gave you a similar kind of reassurance and that maybe you would uh, approach a situation in your life and think, well, what would the Hierophant do right now? Or what kind of advice would I receive if, it was a, if I was approaching the Tower card right now? Is that something that you like thinking about? Oh, yeah. Um, there's two aspects. So I think one is where I like said, in, I, I intentionally feel like I try to understand a particular tarot archetype and see how it fits into my life. And the other is just sitting back and observing how patterns form in your own life path. And there really are like chapters of your life that you can really discern 
and certain tarot archetypes that naturally fit into those particular chapters of your life. So recently for me, if I step back, I do see, uh, for, I call it the Holy Guardian Angel card, but it's the key 14, temperance. So for me now it has been a lot about temperance and the finding that balance between the contrasts. And that has really been the recurring theme in my life, just trying to find that balance and, and occupying the space of temperance. Um, and in terms of just something intentionally that I set, I think that would be key eight strength in the Rider Waite Smith system. Uh, the key eight strength just as something to keep me going and, and as a form of bullseye target to keep myself centered and grounded. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love that. Um, I, I think that for me, what is something that I love about the tarot is really that it reflects the whole range of, of human experiences, including difficulty, darkness, shadows, upheaval, all those kinds of things. And so, um, and at the same time, I think that it's totally human to be nervous about certain cards, especially if you're just starting out. And I love what you were writing about um, reassuring people when they feel that maybe a reading was negative or worrying in some way. Would you maybe like to share a little bit more about what you would advise someone who feels that way? When a reading is negative. Um, so in Eastern mythical thought we have this idea of the threshold guardian and so um, there's this idea that to protect or to safeguard you put on the face of a monster or almost looks devilish and evil to ward away or scare away things that shouldn't belong you know and so I think fear is a really interesting feeling you know and I think you want to apply your intuition to feelings of fear when a reading comes up that's negative and I start to feel very scared I think that's a really interesting time to sit back and instead of going into the cards and unraveling the fear meditating and looking inward and figuring out why are you scared what are you scared is going to happen and I think that's the way I deal with negative uh, negative readings and another way is I think every reading is a balance of negative and positive you know and I think you don't really become a genius, master, prodigy. You never really become great at anything without having experienced suffering. Every hero's journey requires suffering. Who are your heroes? Has any hero in, in history ever not suffered enormous amounts of pain and tragedy? And so you want to think about the pain and tragedy as part of your hero's journey so you can achieve you know, that greatness that you're destined for. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. Um, I also think that sometimes when readings are a little bit frightening, it's interesting to return to the initial question that I was asking. And sometimes I might revise, not the spread, you know, like I wouldn't turn, a, you know, just pack the spread back up and be like, oh, no, I didn't like that. <laughs> but I might really kind of ask myself, hmm, what kind of questions were I really ask, was I really asking here? And um, you know, am I surprised about what's coming up here? And I think that the, the kind of process of coming to the actual questions and choosing a spread that might be suitable is really magical in itself. So I wonder if you have any thoughts on that to share that maybe, yeah, people could consider if they're beginning to create their own spreads and thinking about their questions. One of my absolutely favorite ways is, okay, let's say there's a reading that there's no way you can 
wisely talk yourself out of the fear of the negative implications of the reading, what I do is I take another tarot deck, one that I love. And if you don't have another tarot deck, just use the remaining cards in your deck and you intentionally flip them over and look at the cards and you find a talisman card. So it's almost a form of like manifestation. You know, you, you look for a card that can be almost like a, a neutralizing force against the thing that you find to be negative, find a neutralizing energy from the tarot deck and almost as like a charm, like a sigil almost, you take it out and you very intentionally put it on top of the card that is negative to you, that you want to subdue, that you want to neutralize or void and cancel out in some way and sort of set the intention that you're going to manifest and summon into your world that energy that will subdue, void and cancel, neutralize that thing that is going to cause detriment to your life path. And that sort of intentional act, I feel, is very, very powerful and more powerful than doing another reading. Or I think that is a really great way to neutralize energies that you feel are going to unravel in negative ways in your life. Oh my God, I love that practice. I had never really considered it in exactly that way, but that's so beautiful. Like this physical process of making a choice, allowing yourself to make a choice as well. I think sometimes people are really nervous to turn the deck over and give themselves permission to choose something rather than draw. And then to put that on this card and really think about what would it look like for me to transmute this in my life in this way? That's really cool. Thank you for sharing. Um, and even if you, one more thing to add to yeah. that, sorry to interrupt you, but even if you don't believe in magic or craft or manifestation, just think of it as when you make that physical intentional act, which is so in contrast to the passive act of receiving a tarot reading, the memory of you having done that sticks with you. And it's going to, on a subconscious level, almost train your motor skills to be more proactive in your own life. So then you become more proactive to counter the passive receipt of things that happen in your life and you become more assertive to, to exert your willpower. And so I think the very act of choosing a card saying this will neutralize this thing that I don't want in my life, in a weird way, it subconsciously coaches your own your own personality to then apply that same kind of method to real life. Yes, that's super beautiful. And I'm really excited to share that with everyone. Yeah, it's a great idea. Thank you. Um, I wonder how you set yourself up for a reading. Are you someone who just very casually draws a card every now and then? Or do you begin your day with a card? Or if you sit down for a bigger spread, what does that look like? It depends on the nature of the reading. I do a lot of casual, goofy readings. Like if you and I are like, you know, good friends and you're asking me, you know, you know, you're asking me a half stupid question. I'm going to like, oh, let's, let's look, right? But then if, for example, professional readings or if you come to me and you, you have that face and it's a serious issue. I actually do a very ritualistic and ceremonious preparation before I start with the reading. So it really depends on the nature of the question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you think there's ever a situation where people shouldn't do a reading? Um, I think, okay, I think if you're uh, still very much um, held down by uh, orthodox, dogmatic, fear-based religious and superstitious beliefs 
about evil and and negativity and demons and and you know what i'm saying like i think the reason for that is not because of the cards it's because you manifest that i feel like you're bringing that in a way into your life in some way so i feel like if you're in that space of of profound fear of evil in this world based on doctrine that you've really embedded into yourself that has been coached into you and you haven't found a way to process some of that orthodoxy in your life i would not recommend doing the tarot reading doing a tarot reading because i think it's going to do more harm than good i do think some level of neutrality in terms of your personality and understanding of the world is necessary before you start deep diving into your psychology, which is what the tarot does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good reminder. Um, oh, I just had another question and I, give me one second, I had forgotten about it. Um, oh yeah, I remember now. <laughs> so you were speaking on your about page a little bit on the difficulty of, of naming yourself as an artist. I wonder if that's still something that you're sitting with and how that's changed over time and how you're feeling about it right now. Um, I think I just dare to call myself an artist and then just be like, whatever, like, what are you going to say? Like, who, who's going to really challenge that? Like, even if people secretly challenge it in their heads, no one's going to publicly challenge it. So I'm like, whatever. But I do think um, if you, if you're not professionally a full-time artist and you didn't get the training and the pedigree and all of that, I do think we all have that insecurity and hang up about calling yourself an artist, a writer, a psychic, All of these terms, I feel like we always carry with us some kind of a yearning for validation. And if you don't have that full on validation in your world, like lineage, pedigree, you know, people showering you with praise and, and, and awards and, you know, you being on top of the world. Like if you don't have that, it's, you're always going to have that hang up and insecurity. And it's just something you have to work through. There's nothing around. You just have to work through it on your own. I totally agree. I think that imposter syndrome is so common and I just love being honest about it and sharing that experience with other people and just kind of throwing compliments around like confetti so that we can all lift each other up. I think that's great. Um, yeah, that's beautiful. I wonder how you're balancing creativity and writing with your work in your, in your life right now because it really feels like you're doing a lot. And so how do you yeah, prioritize and make those kinds of decisions? I think for me, it's because I see them as interconnected and I see it. I mean, like I, maybe that's the Eastern yin and yang philosophy that I have. I think the greatest lawyer, the greatest judges, people who are in technical fields, surgeons, you know, people, researchers, innovators, inventors, scientists, engineers, to be truly great, not just another cog in the machine, but to really be great in the scientific world, in the rational based world, you have to be creative and intuitive. You have to. If you want to truly maximize your creativity, your artistry, and you really need, you want to push that to the next level, on some base foundation level, you have to be analytical. You have to have method to your madness. If you don't have some you know, reason to your rhyme, there's no way you can achieve the highest echelons of artistry. So it's always this full circle yin and yang balance. And because I see it that way, it's very, very fluid. I apply a lot of creativity and intuition into the analytical aspects of my life. And I also apply a lot of analysis, logic, and common sense to the creative aspects of my life. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, you used the word psychic earlier, and I wonder what that word means to you because I acknowledge that it can mean so many different things to different people. For some of us, it's really charged. Some of us maybe feel nervous about it. Some find it really empowering and expansive. So I wonder where you're falling on that spectrum. Um, I have no idea what psychic means. It's just, I really don't. Uh, as soon as I think I know the definition, I can think of at least a hundred different examples that defeat my definitions. I really am still hesitant to give a definition, but then at the same time, I don't want to be all fluffy and say it means whatever you mean, because if you say it means whatever you want it to mean, then the word is meaningless. So it's just a really hard space. I don't call myself a psychic. I think that's something I work through. I don't use that word on myself because I think I'm still brainwashed by our society where I think psychic means like omniscient all almost right like you have a you have a deadly accuracy of omniscience over things that are very specific and if that's not what you have then it's intuition right and so i think i still struggle with the difference between psychic ability intuition and how do i navigate that space so i don't know what my definition is and i i don't personally use the word psychic that's really fine it's just interesting to hear thank you yeah <laughs> um there's so much here and I feel like I could talk to you forever, especially because your book is so rich and there's so much to pick on um, there. But I wonder, uh, like one more thing that stood out to me um, on your about page is that you were talking about really embracing all of the human experience and not being here for just love and light. So um, yeah, that, that really spoke to me. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about how maybe your work with the tarot has brought you to that place? um, Well, I think it's because the tarot was there for me during a lot of times in my life when it was not love and light, you know, and I think that has really shaped my own relationship with the tarot. Um, I've talked about this before, like in college, you know, I have different experiences in the social spheres where I have felt bullied or I have felt really, really alone. Um, And so when the community around me isn't there to give me love or support, um, the tarot, because it's a barometer, it's weird where it doesn't give me love and light in the cards, but instead it reflects the true unfiltered aspect of how I feel, the negativity. And there's a comfort in that. You know, there's a real comfort in the cards truly reflecting how I feel, even if it's negative. And it, it kind of becomes a positive in a weird sense, negative, negative equals positive. And it just is a sense of cushion. And because of that relationship I've always had with the tarot, where when nobody else was there for me it was there for me and because of that even the negative aspects is positive I was nodding my head so hard here (laughs) it's a shame that no one could see that yeah that's beautiful thank you you're doing a lot of online work you have a YouTube channel um you have courses that people can take some of which are free I wonder like what makes you feel excited about the internet as this new medium in which we can share ideas and inspiration in that way and you also describe yourself as not a teacher, but someone who, oh, I can't remember the exact words that you use, but that you're really facilitating and creating content. Is that right? Yeah. Content creator. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, well, so what's interesting is I think because, so from my, a lot of the Eastern culture is still influenced by Confucianism. And so uh, what we think of as a teacher and the types of teachers I've had from the Chinese culture, violin teachers, you know, art teachers, um, 
it's a very specific word, you know. So, for example, in Chinese, when you say sifu, it means teacher, but the implication is also master, you know. And there is that that that, that relationship is is just so profound and. Like I've talked about it before, and so I feel like if I can't have that response, if I can't really be there in that in that full responsibility form for somebody, I'm not their teacher, and they should not look at me as a teacher. And but I create content, so it's like more like, well, here's content, do as you will with it, you know. But I think if I was if I was to be a teacher, it has to be one on one. It has to be where I really, you know, like. Almost dict like a dictator, but I say that benevolently because I really do care about their. I care about them so much to the point where I need to make sure they're very, very well protected. And so, if I'm not in that space, I'm not a teacher. And so, that's a very important distinction distinction for me to make. Yeah, that makes total sense. Thank you. So when we are thinking about the content that you're creating and the things that you're sharing and also the things that we are collectively facing politically, you know, um, in terms of climate change, I could name so many examples. What do you wish for people um, or for us collectively to, to know or to learn about our path as humans? Maybe that's a strange question. You can take this anywhere you like. <laughs> I think one of the great things about the tarot is you learn rather quickly that there's no one way you know um there isn't i think you, you're going to box yourself if you think there's a dogmatic one note meaning to every card and that every time it shows up it means this or like you learn to be very very fluid and very very open-minded when you get into a level of mastery with the tarot and so i do hope people can apply that to our lives not to be very extreme or ideological with how we feel and and to really be more fluid in terms of how we understand all people's political ideologies that's both right and left i think right now we are in a space where you have everyone on polarized you know i don't think the right you know you think people are absolutely right or absolutely wrong and i think one of the great arts of the tarot is you learn that you know readings don't come out like that like you do a reading you, even if you think it's predictive it doesn't quite come out the way you think it's going to come out there's no right way to interpret a, a reading in the wrong way it's just this really weird gray area and i think that's very reflective of life and we're forgetting that in this current space that we're in so to get out of this political climate we do have to remember how to read the world the way we read the tarot which is all in the gray mm -hmm. yes all of the gray that makes sense thank you is there anything that you would like to share with people before we go? You've shared so much already, but I wonder if there's anything else on your mind that you would like to say. Um, no, I think you asked a lot of really pertinent questions. So I've been able to talk about everything I wanted to talk about. So thank you for that. Great. That's thank you. Thank you. Um, so what are you currently offering and where can people find you? Um, benabellwen.com, my website. Uh, I'm on YouTube by the same name. You can find my channel there. I haven't uploaded in a while, but I do try. I do have a lot of stuff there. So you probably, if you've never seen my, my work, then you have a lot to go through. So it doesn't matter that I haven't uploaded in a while. And if you want to look at my everyday life, like what I'm, what, what deck am I playing with right now? What food am I eating? My Instagram is at Bellwin. That's really where you can see my day-to-day -day activities, so especially the non-tarot stuff, just, you know, very fun stuff on that on that Instagram feed. 
Cool, thank you. I will link to that in the show notes as well. So if people didn't have a chance to write it down, it will be there as well. Thank you so much for your time today, for everything that you shared and for the work that you're doing. I'm really excited for people to check it out and maybe read your book as well and learn more. Well, thank you so much for being interested in having me on your show. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>